Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion on equipment and technology. And we're going to do several episodes on this topic just because there's so much to cover here. While this often is portrayed as an area that, you know, it isn't quite like the pharmacology or the anatomy that we study in different areas. This is a little bit more of factual information. It it doesn't decrease the significance of it. These are very important conversations and topics that we need to understand as we go about practicing just to take care of our patients. We're going to be talking about choosing the most appropriate equipment that we're going to be using, the different monitoring devices that we're going to be using, We're going to be talking about infection control, how we disinfect, how we sterilize equipment such as fiber optics, different anesthesia equipment that we use, etc. We're going to be talking about what happens when equipment fails. Say you're in the middle of an intubation and one of your airway devices ends up failing. What do you do from that standpoint? And we're also going to be talking about the anesthesia gas machine. What happens when that fails? If you're in the middle of a case, what do you do if that shuts down? And same thing with an electrical failure. What happens if that shuts down? Uh, And so again, we're going to be talking through these different things. And again, while it's not as exciting as some of the other topics, I think it's still just as important because, and maybe I'll talk about this as we get into the discussion more, but I had uh, one of these things actually happened to me probably within the first three weeks of me being on my own as an anesthesia provider. And I'd never had that happen before when I was a student. And so it was something that I had to really go back and after the event, refresh myself on what I should do appropriately based on protocol if this situation were to come up again. And so I think this is a very important topic to discuss. And uh, hopefully you think the same as well as we go through this. So without further ado, Tanner is just going to start us off here with how do we choose the most appropriate anesthesia equipment and monitoring devices for each and every patient that we take care of? Obviously, this all starts with your preoperative assessment. And as you're looking at the patient and you're looking at the procedure, you're putting all those things together to find the best solution as far as monitoring and equipment. But what we want to go over here is just the foundation of all of that. What is the standard? What are the things that we absolutely must have? What are the things that are appropriate to have in different scenarios? And sometimes this feels a little ambiguous. You know, if you're in an endo suite compared to a heart room, you know, obviously there's quite a difference of monitoring uh, devices that are going to be used. But what's our standard? What is something that we absolutely need to have in these rooms? And, uh, you know, making sure that we're taking best care of these patients. So so from the ANA, there's the standard for care for uh, nurse anesthesia practice. And this goes through the different things that we need to have specifically to monitor patients. So at the baseline, this is coming directly from the ANA practice guidelines. The first thing that we'll be monitoring is the oxygenation. And you'll be doing this with your pulse ox. The important thing here is it needs to be on and have an audible sound with the variable pitch that's going to tell you if you have uh, you know any kind of dsat this is really 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 important and you'll start to realize you know when it's really quiet i don't know if you have any machines like we do or any monitors like we do at the place that i work some of the times they don't automatically turn on and you'll get in the room you're connecting to monitors and all of a sudden you're like man it is way too quiet in here 
and you can't quite figure out you know what's going on or it just like sends up a red flag immediately when you don't hear that 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 tone and the reason that it's so important is you you're doing a million different things during your anesthetic and that's going to be something that you just train your ear to be listening to and you'll be monitoring the patient there just audibly listening to the oxygenation through the pulse ox and uh, making sure that that device is on is audible and then you have that variable pitch to tell you if you're desatting or if you're uh, you know oxygenating appropriately we need to be monitoring blood pressure heart rate and respiration at least every five minutes for every single anesthetic that we give with ventilation you're going to be monitoring that with your entitled co2 you'll be doing that with you know even your mat cases you'll always be monitoring there your entitled CO2. If you're going to be intubating a patient, you'll be making sure that you check bilateral breast sounds. You're looking at chest rise and fall, and you're also verifying with entitled uh, CO2 there as well. For your cardiac system, we're going to make sure that you're continually monitoring heart rate, and then also that you're going to be monitoring the blood pressure, like we said, at least every five minutes. And then for your temperature, you need to make sure that you are monitoring the temperature, uh, specifically if you have a case where uh, it's a longer case, or if this is where you need to have their body temperature change for a specific reason, obviously that would be something that you would need to have the monitor on. If you have somebody that you just suspect or have an idea that they're, you know, maybe they're septic and they already have issues with their temperature or possibly, you know, they've come in and they're been down for a little bit and their temperature is very low. Obviously that would be appropriate to be monitoring temperature. This is going to be a, a sign also for our malignant hyperthermia. And so again, just something that we're very keen on making sure that we're monitoring their temperature there. If you're ever going to be giving neuromuscular blocking agents, again, this is the uh, coming straight from our practice guidelines, we're obviously going to be monitoring the degree of muscular blockade. And so you'll need to be monitoring there with your train of four to be monitoring the level of neuromuscular blockade as well. Obviously, this is just the baseline. And, you know, when we talk about the different monitors that we need, this is something that these, these are the non-negotiables. These are the, you know, standard of practice for monitoring the patients. You need to have at least these things. We're going to go much more in depth with different options that you would use for monitoring patients. But I at least wanted to start off with the practice guidelines, just laying it out that it was, you know, as clear as it can be what you'll need for every anesthetic. And then here we'll get into you know a little more detail about what you might use for one case versus another. Obviously, whenever you are monitoring your patient, we like we said earlier, that starts with your preoperative assessment. So you're looking at the patient's comorbidities. You're also looking at previous anesthetics and seeing if there's you know any information you can get from those previous anesthetics with a specific patient that would warrant different monitoring. You also are going to obviously look at the type of procedure and see what types of monitoring will be indicated for that specific procedure. So for an example, if the patient had previous nausea, vomiting with general anesthesia. So if you're looking at previous anesthetics and you talk to this patient and they say, you know, last time I had this general anesthesia, I was, you know, really, really nauseous, felt really terrible, was horribly sick afterwards. Well, now we can 
make the argument that you would want to do a Tiva for this case. Well, now if we're going to do a Tiva, do you want to run BIS as well to you know be monitoring the patient? These would be an appropriate monitor for that specific anesthetic. Aside from monitoring, it's also important when you look at the type of equipment that you'll need in the room. Again, if you're looking at previous surgeries and you can get a good idea of what a previous intubation looked like, or simply if it's just from your assessment and you are noticing it's going to be a difficult mask ventilation, or maybe it's a difficult airway that you're anticipating, then you're going to want to have the appropriate airway equipment, such as a glide scope or a fiber optic scope, bougie, whatever you need there in the room, and you'll have that there available to you. And that's, again, starting from your preoperative assessment, why that's so important. Another monitor that we would want to consider here, depending on the stability of the patient and looking at their lab values, looking at the potential blood loss with a procedure, looking at the strictness that we need to be you know, managing blood pressure. If we're doing a carotid endorectomy that we need to be managing their blood pressure specifically beat to beat, then obviously an A-line would be a consideration there to have a closer grip on their blood pressure. Or if you have a patient who's just hemodynamically compromised and, and that would warrant it as well so that you have a beat to beat monitor. Uh, again, this is all something that would be hopefully realized on, and and appreciated while you're doing your preoperative assessment, but not always, you know, obviously cases change and this might be something that in the middle of the case, there's, uh, you know, things that arise and the patient starts to decompensate. It's important that we understand that our monitors are adaptable and you're able to bring in more monitors to keep these patients safe, depending on the the, the way the case is going. So uh, again, these are just some of the basic ones that we would want to consider. Hopefully these are things that you've been able to bring in preoperatively, but again, this is something that you could also add as you go throughout the case. So additionally, on top of the patient's comorbidities, we really want to be looking at the surgical procedure itself. On top of that, even what the surgeon's preferences are that we're working with, is there anything that he or she would want from our standpoint? And this really all falls back on communication. I can't tell you how many times in my personal experience, especially with ENT surgeons, if I'm doing a uh, any type of airway case, there's often a communication ahead of time with the surgeon just about what type of airway equipment he or she would, would want in the room. At least at my facility, they often are switching out things throughout the case. I might have a regular ET tube or endotracheal tube present to begin with, and then they would recommend switching out to a different variety of an endotracheal tube, and they often like to be able to do that. And so I often will have a communication set up ahead of time with those procedures with the surgeon just to talk about what equipment I'm going to need in the room. So for an example here, let's say you're going to be doing a surgical procedure that's going to involve clamping the carotid artery. If this is the case, you're going to be wanting to make sure you're getting enough cerebral blood flow, cerebral oxygenation. So this would warrant you to monitor above and beyond the basic monitoring that we have. You're going to want to have cerebral oximetry available or even stump pressures, potentially, if you're doing any type of carotid artery clamping. If you're doing an open heart procedure, you're going to be wanting to put in a central line and maybe a pulmonary artery catheter just to be able to provide that extra level of monitoring the different 
pressures going through the pulmonary circuit and back to the right side of the heart. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, but yet the procedure is going to expect to have maybe a large amount of blood loss, maybe strict blood pressure goals. And the surgeon may have a preference where for part of the case, he or she wants the blood pressure above a certain amount and then a couple minutes later below a certain amount. And if you're going to be having to switch that blood pressure through a wide range throughout the case, um, or even if it's a vascular procedure, these are all things that may warrant you to put an art line in, even though the patient is hemodynamically stable to begin with. So it's not just simply a matter of the patient's comorbidities, but it's also the surgical procedure itself. Additionally, there are cases where you're going to need a muscle relaxant in the entirety of the case. And a lot of cases we give muscle relaxants for throughout the entire case, but it's not necessarily needed. There are definitely procedures where the surgeon is going to want and need the patient to be relaxed the entire time. In this case, it is uh, imperative that we're checking train of fours consistently with the peripheral nerve stimulator to make sure that we have the patient completely relaxed uh, because each patient's different and there's no textbook answer to how long a muscle relaxant will last in every single patient. Uh, we can get rough estimates, but we need to make sure that we're monitoring this to provide an adequate level of muscle relaxant for the procedure to uh, go to completion. So when we're deciding if we need to do any of these additional monitoring devices, any extra anesthesia equipment is needed, again, it's really important here to start with your pre-op assessment, but then also have an open discussion with all team members of the anesthesia team, and then even communication with the rest of the surgical team on top of that, if there's a specialty type of procedure being performed. Uh, and again, I kind of alluded to that earlier, especially with airway cases, I feel like this happens a lot where I have a lot of conversations with those surgeons as well. And then in addition, facilities themselves are going to have a lot of protocols put in place. So while as the anesthesia community as a whole are going to have guidelines and even standards to what we should do to monitor and what type of equipment we should use. You should also look at the individual facility you're working at. They may have things that go above and beyond in terms of what exactly they're going to want for different procedures. So I know that's kind of a, a high arching view. Uh, there's no way we can go through every single type of case and what equipment is going to be needed for each one, but it really comes down to starting with your good pre-op assessment, then moving on to good communication and making sure that you have things available. And I like to at least have a plan B as well. So if plan A is not working correctly, I at least know that I have the proper equipment and monitoring capabilities set up to be able to do my plan B if that arises. The next thing that we want to talk about in this episode is going through infection prevention, disinfection, sterilization of equipment. We can talk about the different processes here. And again, from the ANA, we have guidelines for our care. And there's several things that I wanted to touch on specifically because I think this is something that we tend to get lazy with or tend to look over specifically when it comes to the syringes that we use and the needles that we use. So according to our guidelines, we are never to reuse a needle with the same patient. And it seems like that goes without saying, but if a needle has been used for a medication, then it is considered contaminated. And we do not use that for another medication. Even if something was compatible, even if you were going to uh, drop another medication, you know, the same medication later in the case, if you've used that needle, it is a one-time use. It is now contaminated and needs to be disposed of. 
And regarding syringes, this is something that I also see quite a bit of is these syringes are single use. So if you have moved the plunger all the way and completely depressed the plunger, then that is considered unsterile there on the inside of the barrel of that syringe. And so again, that's considered to be unclean and must be discarded. Oftentimes we get in a hurry or we, again, just get lazy and we'll reuse syringes for different medications that are compatible or you'll reuse a syringe for, you know, the same medication even. And again, this is not appropriate and is something that we need to pay close attention to. And this is really a consideration when we're talking about risk for infection and risk for contamination. And so this is something that we need to pay very special attention to. Another thing that we often will overlook or let fall to the wayside is cleaning off our ports before we're injecting medication. We should be using alcohol pads to wipe off the injection port of those lines before we are giving any medication. You know, this goes back to nursing education, scrubbing the hub before we would give the medication. And again, this is still standard of care when we are giving medications. One other thing that I wanted to touch on here that we often will do is to use a single dose medication vial or put that, you know, into a bag. Oftentimes you'll see this with Presidex or with neosinephrine where you'll make up a bag in the morning and then you'll use that throughout the rest of the day. And again, this is not according to the standard of practice. And the standard of practice is that if you use a single dose medication, whether that's in a bag or whether that's in a, a vial, that that is only for single patient you would not use that for multiple patients. And so, again, important that we mention that here, just in terms of reducing the risk for cross-contamination, reducing the risk for infection. This is something that is, is not a standard of care and it's not appropriate when you're giving medications to patients. When we're giving medications, obviously, we should always be completing hand hygiene. So whenever we are giving medication, wash your hands, put on gloves, and then uh, again, we're using a new needle, a new syringe to drop the medication. We're cleaning off the port before we're giving that medication, and then we're discarding the needle and the syringe before we would move on to uh, drawing up another medication. We've talked about this from the very beginning of you know nursing school regarding the best way to prevent cross-contamination, the best way to prevent infection is appropriate hand hygiene. Again, this involves using antiseptic soap, rubbing hands together for at least 20 seconds before you are touching a patient. It's appropriate to be washing our hands. We should be then putting on protective equipment. So that means gloves that we should be putting on before we're touching a patient. It's also important that after we are in contact with a patient, or if we're, you know, touching the the bed or their medications or whatever that would look like, we are going to be removing those gloves, washing our hands and putting on new clean gloves before we would continue our care. So on top of doing appropriate hand hygiene, we also have what's called personal protective equipment or PPE. And this is something that should be very familiar to everybody. This is something that's not just for anesthesia, this is hospital-wide. But in order to protect both patients as well as ourselves, any providers from either transmitting or contracting infections, we have to provide and put on the appropriate level of PPE. And so the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, along with individual facilities that you may work at, have protocols on what exact PPE is required for each and every infection. 
And so examples of PPE are included, but not limited to gloves, gowns, eye protection, mask, and there's different levels of mask, whether you're using an N95 or just a regical, a regular surgical mask. And we'll get into that here shortly. There's lots of different things that we can, we can don on to help prevent the spread of these diseases. And so first, let's just talk about the three common categories for ways that we can transmit infection from one person to another. The first is through a contact. And so we have a contact precaution, which is basically preventing the transmission of infectious agents that are spread by literal contact or touching a surface or a person. So often, if you have a patient that is on contact precautions that is coming to the OR, you should be looking at the chart and do a pre-op assessment ahead of time. We should know ahead of time that they're going to be in contact precautions. Oftentimes at different facilities, they will or should at least on the front of the OR door put up signs saying that the patient is in contact precautions. So if you're going to be going to give a lunch break to somebody that you didn't start the case for, you should at least be notified at the beginning that this is a contact precaution patient. And so we often will put on a gown and gloves for these kind of patients. And we try to, again, do the same type of hand hygiene that you would do for any and every patient, uh, but especially be doing that when you're leaving the room as well. And then also there are different steps to actually taking off your PPE. And this is a very appropriate thing that you have to do to minimize the risk of spreading the infection. And again, we're not going to go into all of that today on this talk. So it's important that you review what the actual protocols are at your facility that would determine what things you need for each patient and then how you actually take them off. When you have a droplet precaution patient, this is when we're going to add an actual mask. In surgery, we're going to be using surgical mask anyway whenever we're in a surgical procedure. And so this really doesn't change too much for us when you have a simple droplet precaution. So from a mask standpoint, we're not really changing much. You're still using your surgical mask. In addition here, we're going to do things that we were doing for contact precautions. So we're going to add the gown and the gloves to this patient as well. And then when we get into airborne, this has especially been on the rise with COVID the last few years, but we're going to be adding the additional N95. And again, this is really important that you have a mask that is going to be airtight. We have to get uh, fit tested every so often. And this, again, depends on what facility you work at as to how often you have to get fit tested for this. But it is a mask that is not going to be allowing any of those spores that are in the air to be able to get through the surgical mask that you would be wearing for the droplet precautions. And so you have to have a tight fitting N95 mask. And again, this is when facial hair kind of comes in the way of this. And a lot of people that I work with have to end up using pappers or hoods that go over the entire head uh, just to be able to provide that airtight seal. But again here, just simply putting on this PPE is one thing, but also taking it off in the proper way is another important thing. And again, look at the protocols on exactly how we're supposed to remove these type of equipment just to minimize the risk of spreading these infections. So what if you have a patient that is not in any type of these droplet, airborne, or contact precautions? So if we're doing a regular OR procedure, we're still going to be wearing some level of PPE more so than what you'd be using if you just walked into a patient's room in the rest of the hospital. So for surgical procedures, we're going to be doing a basic level of PPE for every type of procedure that we do. And obviously, we don't wear our street clothes into the operating room. We're going to be having surgical scrubs that are provided for us at each facility. You're also going to be using your surgical mask. 
you're going to be using hair coverings. And this again is not uh, limited to just on top of the head. And this is also facial hair as well. And make sure that you're doing the hand hygiene appropriate between each and every patient as Tanner talked about earlier, and that we're not using the same pair of gloves more than once, even on the same patient. I think it's also important to talk about here how with each and every case that we do, we also have some sort of a clean and organized setup to our anesthesia stations, whether that be a medication cart in the room, the anesthesia gas machine, whatever you're going to be using for all of your equipment throughout the case, it's important to have a flow and an organized system. There's no specific way that you have to do this over another. It's recommended that we have an area designated for our medications, an area designated for dirty airway equipment. So if you were doing a general anesthetic and you've used some equipment to manipulate the airway, you don't put that right next to anything clean that you'd be reusing throughout the case. And so again, there's no specific way that you have to have it all set up. But again, it's important that you have some sort of organized way that separates these things from each other. Next, let's talk about what this actually looks like while you are providing anesthesia. So first and foremost, let's think about when we're managing a patient's airway, there's obviously some risk there for contaminating yourself. Specifically, when we think about intubating, if you're going to use your hand to scissor the mouth open, now you have your hand inside the patient's mouth. And then the next thing you know, you're going to be wanting to reach over and touch the bag on your anesthesia machine. What is recommended here is that you would double glove. And so after you open the patient's mouth and now you're DLing and you've placed the tube, now you can take off that external glove. Now you have a clean glove when you're touching your anesthesia machine. It's important that obviously we are, our highest priority is the patient. The maintenance of oxygenation obviously is going to be the highest priority. But this also, you know, takes a lot of mind space. And oftentimes we can be really fixated on that. And we spend less time thinking about prevention of, you know, cross-contamination or infection. So it's important that this is something that just becomes routine for you. This becomes part of your setup that you are making it as easy as possible to eliminate the risk for contaminating your machine and for having issues with cross-contamination between patients. When we talk about the equipment that we are going to use, and now we're thinking about reusing equipment, some of that is going to be single use, and so we're not as worried about that. But when we think about disinfection or sterilization of equipment, there's a really helpful guideline from AANA that I was reading through, and this was helpful for me to just get a high arching view of this. We'll talk more specifically about specific situations where you'll do one thing versus another. But at the very basic level, when you're talking about a instrument that is going to be touching sterile tissue or the vascular system of a patient, so think about surgical instruments or angiocaths or you know anything that you're going to be using that's going to be going inside the patient there in the, again, vascular system or sterile tissue, that is going to need to go through sterilization if it's a reusable device. If it's just going to be touching mucous membranes or if it's going to be uh, touching non-intact skin, this is something that we will have go through high-level disinfection. This would be things like your breathing circuits. This would be things like your endoscopes, your laryngoscopes, fiber optics, McGill's. These are all things that will go through that high-level disinfection. The other category that we'll talk about is 
contact with intact skin. So this would be something like, you know, blood pressure cuffs. This would be uh, arm board or a pulse ox monitoring cables. This is going to be intermediate or low level disinfection. And this is going to, um, again, just help us as we talk about specifics here that you have an overarching view of these different categories and what type of, of cleaning or sterilization needs to happen with each of these categories. So specifically, when we think about you know the things that we handle the most, if we're talking about the you know anesthesia, respiratory therapy equipment such as breathing circuits, think about our ET tubes, laryngoscopes, fiber optic scopes. Those should all be cleaned with high-level disinfectants to destroy all the vegetative bacteria or non-lipid viruses. Examples of these high-level disinfectants would be glutaraldehyde-based formulations. These would be things like Sidex and Gluterol. These equipment and devices should also be rinsed with sterile water, and then they should all be dried to prevent any further growth. One of the main things that we see in our field is the reusable laryngoscope blades. They should also have the same high-level disinfectant applied to them, and then they should be closed in a plastic bag for storage. For laryngoscope handles, make sure you wipe off the handle at a minimum with your intermediate level disinfectant, and this would be like your rubbing alcohol or your bleach. If we're talking about the patient care items, again, this is that last category that I spoke of when we were talking about the guidelines. This would be things like the monitoring cables or point of care devices, medication pumps, arm boards, et cetera. Those should be cleaned after every use with a low or intermediate level disinfectant. And then things like the surfaces, such as your computer, anesthesia machine, those should all be cleaned in between patients, again, uh, based on your manufacturing and facility policy. Oftentimes, there's specific things that they want you to use for you know, anything with a screen on it. Think also about your ultrasounds. Those would be things that you'd want to consult your specific facility to know exactly what your protocol is. You still fall under those that last category with the intermediate to low-level disinfectant. As far as knowing what specifically you need to use, though, make sure you just consult your facility for, for better guidance there. Hopefully, you guys are all still with us here. Uh, we'll, we'll try to keep everything moving. But as we finish off this topic, we want to get into the breathing system itself. So when we're hooking up patient after patient after patient to the same anesthesia gas machine, what are ways that we can limit the risk of transmission between one patient or another? So if you have a patient in the room, you're doing a general anesthetic on them, and they have some sort of respiratory infection, and they're going to be undergoing inhalational anesthesia. Usually what we recommend doing is placing a high-efficiency filter at the end of the breathing circuit where it connects to your valves, either your inspiratory or your expiratory valve on your anesthesia gas machine. So if you place this filter on the inspiratory limb, it's then going to protect the patient from the anesthesia machine. So if you think about it, gas is going to be flowing out of the anesthesia machine into the patient. So if I put a filter on the inspiratory limb of that circuit, it'll protect anything from, from coming out of the anesthesia machine potentially virally harmful to the patient from even reaching the patient to begin with. But then if I have a patient that I'm concerned about 
them taking their respiratory infection and transmitting it back into the anesthesia machine to then give to subsequent patients, then I would place that on the expiratory limb. Because if I place the filter on the expiratory limb, it's going to protect the anesthesia machine from even getting those viral agents to even reach the machine to start with. It's also important to note here that if you're going to be using these type of filters, reduce your gas flow to between one and two liters per minute, um, or even less if you can. And that's because it will preserve the humidity. Um, otherwise, it, it's often nice to use some of the filters that often enhance the humidification as well. Sometimes they'll even recommend placing two filters, uh, again, one at the end of the expiratory limb and then one at the beginning of the inspiratory limb, just to provide it from both sides as well. It's also important to note here, and again, I feel like we typically do this, but make sure that you're discarding the respiratory circuit or the breathing circuit after use between each patient. So you're not using the same circuit and connecting it to a new ET tube or in the tracheal tube every time that you have a new patient come in the room. So make sure that that part of your circuit, the entire system up to the anesthesia machine is being discarded and replaced with a new one between each and every patient. One more thing that we wanted to touch on in this episode was talking about specifically the changes that have happened since the onset of COVID in the past couple of years. We've seen an increase in the use of disposable equipment. We've already talked about this a little bit earlier when we we're talking about disposable laryngoscopes. And you're starting to see that there's more and more hospitals that are moving to these types of devices. You'll see disposable fiber optic scopes as well. And this is something that, you know, there's there's definitely environmental concerns when you're thinking about using a new piece of equipment for every single patient. But when you're actually looking at cost between these, there's there's some discrepancy in kind of people that are on, on both sides because you have high level costs for sterilization and processing that reusable equipment. And the cost may actually be the same or lower using the disposable, plus with the onset of COVID, reducing the risk for having any cross-contamination is improved with having the disposable laryngoscopes and those disposable fiber optic scopes. So this is something that we're seeing more and more. Again, those disposable equipment, though that's going to be single patient use, they should be kept in the room with the patient until they're transferred to PACU, and then you can dispose of them appropriately. It's important that we we think about, you know, when we're talking about the, the things that can be reused, there's going to be different models and different things that, you know, some handles can't even go through sterilization because they have to be dismantled and, and there's different pieces and components to it. So you should follow the manufacturer's recommendations regarding how you're going to clean that equipment effectively. But again, something we should just mention here that we are seeing more and more of that the disposable equipment being used since the onset of COVID. So something else to consider, again, keep that in the room with you throughout the time the patient's there, and then just dispose of that accordingly at the end. So this is going to wrap us up for the first part of this two-part episode. And so what we've talked about so far in summary, we've talked about what different types of monitoring equipment and anesthesia equipment are you going to need for each and every patient case that you do anesthesia on? And while we couldn't go through every example that there is, we really wanted to do a high-arching view on, first of all, making sure that you do a quality pre-op assessment, and this will lead you to what things you're going to need when you get into the operating room. Secondly, what type of anesthesia procedure are you going to be doing? 
and talking with the surgeon, having good communication between the rest of the anesthesia team members, the rest of the OR team members about different things that are going to possibly be needed. And that should drive you to what equipment and monitoring capabilities you're going to have. We also talked about the standard monitoring capabilities and the standard monitoring that we should be doing per the AANA guidelines. We then went into talking about infection prevention, different ways that infections can be spread in the operating room uh, between patients that have any type of disease processes, all the way down to patients that are healthy. And we just want to make sure that we're cleaning things appropriately and not transmitting them from one patient to another. So stick with us for the second part of this two-part episodes, as we're going to get into what happens when things go wrong. What happens when you start having malfunction in anesthesia equipment, the anesthesia gas machine, any electrical failures, and what do you do in those situations? Because there are situations that can get your get your heart rate going up a little bit when you're having a patient under anesthesia and some of these things start to go south on you. And you want to make sure that you know what to do, uh, what protocols to follow, calling for backup, et cetera, when, when things like this happen and and making sure that you have plan B and C in place so that you know what to do if you all of a sudden have an issue ventilating the patient because something went wrong. So if you want to know the different type of things and protocols that we should put in place for those, I highly recommend you stick with us for the second part of this episode.